Support for NPR and the following message come from Carvana, on a mission to make car buying more convenient and affordable than ever before. In minutes, you can browse thousands of options under $20,000. Visit Carvana.com or download the app today to get started. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may have changed by the time you hear this show. Stay up to date with all the latest news, listen to your local NPR member station, and visit npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Boodoo from Axios Today, and once again, it's time for the News Roundup. So much to talk about this week. There's the debt, Disney, and a closely watched decision from the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals that'll likely have far-reaching consequences for millions of people across the country. Joining us from New York is Mary Harris, the host and managing editor at What Next, a daily news podcast from Slate. Let's also welcome Steve Clemens, editor-at-large at Semaphore, and Arthur Delaney, a senior politics and economy reporter at HuffPost. Arthur, great to be with you. I'm thrilled to be here. As the June 1st debt ceiling deadline looms, President Joe Biden is prioritizing negotiations to avoid a catastrophic default. Biden announced he'll be cutting his trip to Asia for the G7 summit short so he can return to discuss a path forward on the issue. And he's pretty hopeful about it. We had a productive meeting yesterday and uh, with all four leaders in the Congress. It was civil and respectful. And everyone came to the meeting, I think, in good faith. I'm confident that we'll get the agreement on the budget that America will not default. That was the president speaking on Wednesday. Mary, Biden says he's feeling confident. But what does him cutting short his trip say about how how dire these negotiations have become? Well, I guess my opinion is they've never not been dire. It's just now that we have this deadline. Like, <laughs> Roll Call had a great quote that was that was like, you know, deadlines are like alarm clocks here in Washington. And I think it's true. Like, people really wake up when it's tight. And, of course, Janet Yellen has said the X date is June 1st. That is the date when we will stop being able to pay our bills. And because we're working on Congress time, that actually leaves us with very little time to get things done. Even Kevin McCarthy at the beginning of the week said, we have to have something done by the end of the week. And of course, we're at the end of the week. To me, the sign that there's progress here is that over the course of this week, you could see how people at both ends of the political spectrum were beginning to uh, get agitated about what they were hearing about potential compromises, both on the very conservative end and on the more progressive end. People saying, hold it, I don't know how I feel about work requirements for welfare. People saying, you know, I don't I don't know how I feel about these discussions we're having now that everyone's getting chummy. And to me, that means, okay, we're on a path to compromise. The question is when it happens and whether it will be in time. So that's, that's the open question for what happens this weekend. Arthur, you have been at Congress all week. Can you remind us again, congressional schedules over the next two weeks and if we really have a full two weeks in terms of Congress being here? Well, the Senate actually just left town for a a week, but uh, the majority leader told them we might have to come back at any time. Uh, But they're waiting for the House to move first. The House will be here. And I I think the best estimate is that from the minute they get a, a deal done and draft it, they need probably seven to 10 days to get it through both the House and Senate. The June 1st X date is not totally certain. We need more updates from the Treasury Secretary. Uh, that you know, That's a, a, the earliest possible date. Um, but if they have a 
deal and they're up close to the deadline, just the knowledge that there's a deal would do a lot to settle the situation and, and avert uh, uh, the most catastrophic market reaction. Right. And so Senate Democrats are circulating a letter pushing Biden to invoke the 14th Amendment to raise the debt ceiling. Meanwhile, House Democrats are gathering signatures to move legislation to lift the ceiling and bypass Republican leadership. Are there most people know the 14th Amendment as the amendment that gave citizenship to former slaves? How could Biden use this for the debt ceiling? That is what the 14th Amendment was for. Uh, it's a Reconstruction Amendment after the Civil War, um, and as part of that, there's a clause in there that says the uh, the validity of the of debt held by the United States shall not be questioned. And this was written in reference to Civil War debts that the that the government did and didn't want to pay. But it says that, and the clear meaning is that you you can't not pay debts, right? And so Democrats are saying, Joe Biden. Just invoke this clause and lift the debt ceiling yourself and ignore Congress. And the president has said he'd consider that, but it, it's looking unlikely. They've not signaled they're considering it strongly, and it would definitely get tied up in courts. So it, it would be a chaotic thing for him to do, and it's uh, a last resort, I'd say. Yeah, Steve, I was just going to ask you that. Is that basically the last resort option to go that path? <laughs> Well, I agree with Arthur that it probably um, is in the minds of many of the players there. But I have to say on the sidelines, there are a lot of Democrats who want him, want Joe Biden to to use the Article 14 card anyway uh, and end what Mary just said, which is this ritualized crisis. They said it says it clears day in the Constitution. And if the Supreme Court were to come in against it, the language that they would be undoing would undo lots of other articles, including gun protections and others, Article 2 and, 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 and other. And so they look at it as a way to uh, essentially show boldness and end this, you know, chant, you know, this, 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 this process where the full faith and credit of the United States could collapse. And, you know, one thing I'd just add to the conversation we've had, one of the reasons why this may be less ritualized in the past is you've got members of Congress, particularly in the GOP, that have actually openly called for default, who want default to happen. And when, you, when you've got essentially a four-seat margin uh, behind Kevin McCarthy's direction here, that raises a lot of concerns that people have. So so, so I, I, I agree with what Arthur said, that this would be uh, an unlikely scenario, one that is a last resort, but there are leading Democrats in both uh, the House and the Senate that want Joe Biden to play this card because they want to do have a definitive end to the kinds of things we're seeing play out. Mary, there's also a more procedural route some House Democrats are attempting to do with a petition. Yeah, the discharge petition. So this is <laughs> this is this very I was going to say wacky. It's not wacky, but it's just it's a procedural approach. Like when I when I spoke to Jordan Weissman at Semaphore about it, he talked about it as being kind of like the nerdy approach that every debate kid like wants to try because it, it it's it's a procedural thing where you're forcing something to happen but you, it's just like you're following the rules like basically you have this shell bill where you can put the debt ceiling thing inside of it it has lots of signatures it has 210 signatures but of course that's not enough <laughs> they would need 218 people to sign on to it to force this vote and it's not even clear what's in this because we you know this is something where you slip in the debt ceiling agreement inside of it so it it I think this is another one where it's just you can see everyone's working all the levers of power and it, to me that shows 
how the extreme place we're at, right? Where we're talking about the 14th Amendment. We're talking about discharge petitions. It shows how much these two sides are having trouble talking to each other because all of them are looking for these workarounds that just allow them to get around each other, talking to each other, essentially. But even even the discharge petition, it would require Republicans to sign on and say, we do not want to reach this X date. We do not want um, to go over the debt limit. And that's a tall order. There's also the issue of even if this discharge petition went through, because of all the hurdles of timing, it would probably not go through until after June 1st, which, you know, as we said earlier, that's not like a final thing. It could We could get a few extra days in there. But, you know, time is running out, essentially. That's Slate's Mary Harris, Semaphore's editor-in-chief Steve Clemens, and the Huffington Post's Arthur Delaney is are with us. Let's talk about some of these specifics here. In a debate over federal benefits, work requirements, Mary, you mentioned these are at center stage. Here's House Speaker Kevin McCarthy speaking to CNBC on Wednesday. Work requirements only go to those able-bodied people with no dependents. You could be in school and be waived. You could be looking for a job and be waived. But what we found with every statistical data, it helps people get a job. It helps the economy and the individual even stronger. And that's what we should be doing. For months, Republicans have pushed for stricter work requirements, but a GOP lawmaker from Pennsylvania has taken a different approach than some of his colleagues. Representative Glenn Thompson pitched the idea of, quote, work opportunity requirements in a meeting with President Biden last week. Over the weekend, Biden said he's open to new work requirements as part of ongoing negotiations with Republicans over government spending. Arthur, why is this debate over work requirements so controversial? Well, another way of thinking of work requirements is they take benefits away from people who don't have jobs. So they they have this virtuous sounding name, but what they're really about is saving the government money and shoving layabouts into the workforce. That's what Republicans, what Kevin McCarthy was just saying, would result from that. Uh, You know, the evidence that that's what happens is not there. I mean, it basically makes people poorer. Um, And it's highly symbolic. Republicans love the idea of sticking it to a labor force that uh, employers have been complaining about for the past two years. You know, can't find people to accept wages to fill positions. And Democrats hate it for exactly the same reason. Um, And it's not a lot of money at stake. It's uh, the symbolism is going to be key to the deal. And it looks like Joe Biden is going to agree to some form of work requirement, uh, stricter work requirement. It's just a question of how strict and which programs is it going to be? Is it going to be food assistance, which is a huge program, or cash assistance, which is a tiny federal program? And it's the latter that Biden, the White House, have signaled the most interest. And how will that play with congressional Democrats? They hate it so much. They're so mad about it. That's, that's the reason you see Senate Democrats talking about the 14th Amendment this week. Like Mary said, it's a symbol that they're getting upset with where negotiations are going. We'll be back with more of the News Roundup in just a moment. Coming up, we'll get into North Carolina's newest abortion bill and get into some important congressional hearings. All that and more still ahead. Stay with us. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. 
the day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. We're discussing the week's biggest headlines. Let's get back to the conversation. Access to medication abortion faced a critical test on Wednesday. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals heard arguments about whether the abortion pill Mifepristone, first approved by the FDA more than 20 years ago, should remain on the market. Steve, what's important about this Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the judges, and this case before them? Well, it's in Louisiana, but what it, what this um, appeals court uh, case is is doing is one that would have provided either clarity or more tension over the whether the, the question of mifeprestone should be available widely and easily in the nation. Uh, and this is a hotly contested issue, and we got no clarity really in, in at least what the Biden administration ho- hoped for about the drug being widely available. What we got were from the judges. You can often tell the way a, a court may go by the by the questions and to some degree the ferocity of interest of the judges. And in this, it's very, very clear uh, that these appeals court federal uh, judges are uh, questioning the logic behind the, the Biden administration's uh, views that they should um, you know, keep this drug uh, widely available. So uh, what we've seen is the situation get um, much, much tighter and tenser for those who are worried that this widely available drug may be taken off the market. So just to be clear, it sounds like from the judge's questions that they're leaning against the Biden administration here. That is where the the tone and feel of this hearing on Wednesday was. Arthur, a lot of people may have heard about an old law called the Comstock Act, which has intersected with the news this week. Can you tell us about that? It's a law Congress passed in the 1800s. It's named for a legendary prude named Anthony Comstock, who uh, campaigned against lewd and obscene materials, and the law prohibits these things from being sent in the mail. And it explicitly says no uh, abortion pills in the mail. And this was basically a dead letter until Congress overturned, until the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And and, uh, as soon as that happened, Republicans are like, Comstock Act, let's go. And so it's part of these legal battles. And uh, recently, the FDA has allowed abortion pills to be sent in the mail and it's increasingly important that they be available as various Republican-led states ban abortion, uh, meaning people need to be able to get this medicine from elsewhere. And so uh, Republicans want to stop that, and they're invoking this law, which clearly says you can't do that. Um, and you know, it's a live issue. And the law from 1873 addresses abortion pills? Yes, it does. It says you can't, you can't send lewd things in the mail and you can't send abortion pills. So Republican messaging over a federal abortion ban continues to be an issue for the GOP. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley said on Sunday that it's, quote, not realistic or necessarily honest, end quote, for any 2024 candidate to promise a federal abortion ban should they make it to the Oval Office. 
for a national standard, I think we have to tell the American people the truth. In order to do a national standard, you'd have to have a majority of the House, 60 Senate votes, and a president. We haven't had 60 pro-life senators in mm. 100 years. So the idea that a Republican president could ban all abortions is not being honest with the American people any more than a Democrat president could ban these pro-life laws in the states. That was Republican Nikki Haley speaking to CBS News. Steve, that did not go down well with those pushing for a nationwide abortion ban. As a campaign strategy, how might Haley's position help or hinder her? Well, I think it does impress some Republicans and also many independents that look at a strident, um, highly constricted abortion law nationally as something, one that won't work, won't be achieved, and is, you know, to, to quote Ambassador Haley, is unrealistic. I mean, I sort of listened to the speech and I said, wow, that's a kind of she's showing, you know, showing her, you know, inner Nixonian realism about the situation. We've also seen, you know, other GOP candidates uh, uh, who are wannabe, you know, Senator Tim Scott, but also when I interviewed former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, he said there are a lot of Republicans who are opposed to a federal uh, charge on this and that it should be a state's rights, state's uh, legislative issue. And I think Nikki Haley is keeping that open and being realistic. And I think that while that is frustrating, the Susan B. Anthony, you know, life crowd, it is something that may appeal and she may see that's a way to differentiate herself in the in the market right now, which is let's talk about what's pragmatic and real and doable versus, you know, strident positions that others have taken. And, you know, we've seen basically how abortion played out in the 2022 election. It didn't work out real well for Republicans. So that flexibility may give her, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, air under her, uh, behind her. Let's let's talk about how two states have handled that. This week, North Carolina's Republican-led legislature pushed through a bill banning most abortions after 12 weeks of pregnancy. Lawmakers decided to override Democratic Governor Roy Cooper's veto, and the governor made it clear on CBS News what he wants voters to take away from that move. All we needed was one Republican to stop it, one Republican in either the House or the Senate. This vote shows that Republicans are completely unified in their assault on women's reproductive care. And South Carolina lawmakers are debating a bill that would ban abortion as early as six weeks in the state. South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace is a survivor of rape, and she expects the bill to pass. She told CNN that local lawmakers were about to make a big mistake. I would garner that if you were to do a ballot referendum on abortion in a conservative state like South Carolina, the majority of voters would not be supportive of a six-week ban that allowed very few exceptions for a very short period of time and required women to have their rapes reported to police. Mary, that new ban passed the South Carolina House on Tuesday, but whether it will pass the Senate is less certain. There are five senators, all women, who torpedoed the legislature's last attempt at a ban earlier this month, and they say they're going to do it again. Why has South Carolina become such a battleground and the state house for abortion here? I think it's really interesting what's happening in South Carolina because South Carolina tried to pass a six-week ban, went to the Supreme Court last year woman wrote the deciding opinion basically saying this is a woman's choice to do. It's a privacy concern, bounced it back. She was replaced on the court. So Republicans now see an opening to pass another ban, send this back up again. They've been trying to pass a ban at conception, um, so quite early. And these five women in the South Carolina Senate who are Republicans, who are Democrats and independent, they've all band together to say no. 
we won't do that. Even though a couple of them have said they're open to a six-week ban, a couple of the Republicans. And so now we're in this interesting choice period where the House is coming back to them with a six-week ban and asking them to pass it. And we'll just have to see what they do. They have said, as you said, they've said they're going to keep sticking together. They don't like the amendments associated with this ban. But obviously, if you look at what happened just across the state line in North Carolina, there's a ton of pressure on these Republicans to you know, vote for bans. But it, it, I just think these women are so interesting, working across party lines and just saying, like, we know what's best for women, which is to make these choices with their doctor, with their partner, with their God. Like, this is how this should be. And so we'll have to see what happens when they all gather and, and debate it. NBC News this week reported the White House is laying the groundwork to stop plans to move U.S. Space Command's headquarters to Alabama, in part because of concerns about that state's restrictive abortion law. Mary, what other outcomes might we see as to who decides to invest where and how local laws and reproductive care could come to bear on these decisions? Well, we're already seeing outcomes, right? There are all these reports about physicians leaving states where they feel that the care that they can provide is being curtailed. And I think that's a very important thing to focus on. You know, one of the things that happened when the House in South Carolina was debating this six-week ban is that a Democratic representative got up and talked about the fact that there are 46 counties in South Carolina that do not have an OBGYN. He talked about his own daughter who didn't realize she was pregnant for four and a half weeks. It took her 14 weeks to get an appointment with her gynecologist. So it's like there's already a lack of care. And I think it's really important to pay attention to what not just the business community is doing, because the business community will be making moves, but also these physicians. Like, where do they feel like they can practice? And how does that impact the people who are left in these states and need just the basics? Earlier this week, senators grilled the former CEO of the collapsed Silicon Valley Bank. Gregory Becker made his first public comments since the bank failed and he was fired back in March. Becker abdicated responsibility for SVB's problems. Here's part of his testimony, followed by comments from Senate Banking Committee Chair Sherrod Brown, a Democrat from Ohio. I believe that SVB's failure was brought about by a series of unprecedented events. Mr. Becker, your version of events blames SVB's failure on too many interest rate hikes, a social media-driven bank run, the closure of the much smaller Silvergate Bank, and the regulators for being slow to highlight its long-standing problems. It sounds a lot like the dog ate my homework. Arthur, congressional hearings like this tend to be fairly acrimonious. What was, was that basically the tenor of how most of the hearing went? I mean, the purpose of a hearing like this is basically venting of spleen. And and Becker came out and said, I am truly sorry, but also, like, it wasn't my fault. You know, we no, no bank could have withstood a run like the one we had. And members of Congress, of course, chastised him. And they really, they really have an interest in chastising him because they set the stage for this bank failure, for this series of bank failures uh, through, through deregulation in recent years. So it's an all-around pointing the finger and deflecting blame exercise. And I don't think there were significant revelations. Republican Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana took direct aim at Becker's competence and intelligence as CEO. You didn't have hedges, did you? Senator, there were hedges that were put in place, but I don't recall the details around when they were put in place. You're the CEO and you didn't, you had 55% of your assets 
in government bonds and you don't know whether you were hedged or not? Do hedges cost money? Yes, they do. And so if you bought hedges, you'd have less money, right? Senator, it depends upon, yes, they would cost money, but it depends upon how the And if you'd made less money, that would have affected your bonus, wouldn't it? John Kennedy is really funny, uh, but he's one of the guys who wrote the law in 2018 that exempted Silicon Valley Bank from stricter uh, stress tests that it would have failed if they had uh, been in place. And I asked him, uh, you know, he's going around saying, where were the regulators? I said, Senator, you told them to go take a hike. And he didn't appreciate that. None of them like to hear that, but that's that's what happened. It's a, it's a mutual mess up by Greg Becker and senators like John Kennedy. Steve, to Arthur's point, after the 2007 financial crisis, there was the creation of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, the passage of the Dodd-Frank Act that was intended to prevent banks from excessive risk-taking The fall of SVB, First Republic, and Signature Bank have not triggered the same calamity we experienced 16 years ago. So are we expecting greater financial regulation that could come because of these bank failures? Not right now because people are sort of looking at the fact that they've stopped – you know, a, a contagion growing from Silicon Valley Bank and Republic and Signature Bank, and they're basically looking at this um, line of banks that, that, you know, they're blaming essentially internal governance issues. Uh, in the case of SVB, I agree, agree with Arthur that that it was, you know, a, a, a pox in both houses, but at the same time, they bank regulators did communicate with Silicon Valley Bank that they had uh, too much risk that they had to manage that out. We heard uh, the CEO come out and say that he thought he was responding to that, uh, but there clearly was it was ineffective, and he had been uh, uh, told so uh, by some bank regulators. But that said, they believe, at least in the way we saw in the quick action of the disposition of these failed banks within the, within the system, that now those who are you know, on the Senator Kennedy side of the aisle and basically saying, why didn't you do this? And to go to Arthur's point, we're probably part of the problem of the ecosystem are also not ready to come out with a whole lot of new bank regulation. So it's very, very unlikely, I think, that you will get a lot of new bank regulatory activity um, that's bipartisan and passable in this in this Congress. Let's talk about a CEO who came to Congress this week and asked for better regulation. That's the CEO of the company OpenAI. On Monday, Sam Altman testified to Congress that AI tools could pose a serious threat to our democracy and called on Congress to better regulate artificial intelligence. Here's Republican Senator Josh Hawley from Missouri questioning Altman. Should we be concerned about large language models that can predict survey opinion, and then can help organizations, entities fine-tune strategies to elicit behaviors from voters? Should we be worried about this for our elections? Yeah. Uh, thank you, Senator Hawley, for the question. It's, it's one of my areas of greatest concern. The more general ability of these models to manipulate, to persuade, uh, to provide sort of one-on-one uh, you know, interactive disinformation. I do think some regulation would be quite wise on this topic. Someone mentioned earlier, it's something we really agree with. People need to know if they're talking to an AI, if, if content that they're looking at might be generated or might not, I think it's a, a great thing to do. Arthur, what were the key takeaways from his testimony here? So he said the government needs to step in and perhaps create a, uh, a governing body, like a, a, a federal agency that would uh, license companies that make AR, AI software and, and make sure they comply with rules uh, you know, protecting privacy and uh, protecting the software from being misused. But this is not this is not something that's going to happen anytime soon. And that's why there was such it was basically a friendly hearing 
with Holly asking nice questions. And Holly said afterward, he did, you know, they're not going to move fast. Um, but we've all seen the film The Terminator, and and that's basically the outcome that they're trying to head off, you know, on a smaller, more modest scale. But there's there's a real fear, even by the guy behind uh, ChatGPT, that this stuff can be misused and maybe even like extricate itself and run amok. We're rounding up the week's biggest news. Plenty more still ahead. We'll be back after this short break. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. Let's get back to the news roundup. Steve, getting back to Sam Altman's open AI hearing, question for you. Arthur was talking before the break about what regulation this might take shape. And I know Sam Altman kind of compared this idea of AI to nuclear power and having sort of a agency level regulation. Is anything like that feasible? Well, anything is feasible if you get enough people uh, behind it. But I think, you know, what's interesting is Sam Altman was both trying to sort of lay out his concerns, but we should say that almost every other major, you know, tech CEO out there, whether it's in Google or Twitter or Facebook or, you know, Snap, uh, Tesla, have all called for various forms of regulation of new technology. And I think, you know, the commentator out there, Professor Scott Galloway, was sort of mocking Sam Altman, saying, of course you do. This is sort of a regular ritual as well. And and he's facing a set of senators who were thoughtful, they were respectful of him, but who have none of the literacy for as of now to look at how you might actually structure something uh, in the AI field. And I think there are a lot of skeptics out there that think that the federal government can move either with the literacy and facility and can move quickly enough to deal with how rapidly AI is taking hold uh, in business, in manufacturing, in our society writ large. And so there, there's a lot of skepticism out there right now, even after this this hearing, which was, you know, certainly had a better tone than most hearings when you have tech CEOs in. But, but there are doubts about the ability of members of Congress to get ahead of this. They haven't even gotten around to regulating crypto, despite despite its clear harms and scams and crimes that, that it's used for. And, of course, we're looking ahead to 2024. Steve, how could Russia or other U.S. adversaries use AI to affect our elections or manipulate voters? Well, one of the most interesting exchanges in the Sam Altman hearing was with Senator Josh Hawley, and it sort of surprised me, where 
Josh Hawley asked, you know, could this be used, could AI be used to fashion very, very specific messages to change people's worldviews? Uh, and the answer, of course, to that is, is yes. And it raises a lot of concerns that Senator Hawley had about the impact that would have on voters. I mean, this was a chilling moment, I thought, in the in the campaign. And so when you sort of look at the ability of other foreign players to come in, uh, use the database, the gusher of information and data that goes into these, and to basically do what we saw a little bit less sophisticated with Cambridge Analytica, looking at big data, looking at messaging and how you you know, influence voters and how they see uh, the world and think about it. Sure, that is a real vulnerability out there, messaging and how that impacts uh, voters or you know, the, what we call now the various tribes in America in civil society. So it's a big vulnerability. Arthur, given that and the fact that there generally is bipartisan support for fixing that still doesn't seem as if anything will happen quickly here? It's just too new. And, and lawmakers take too long to get up to speed on things like this. It's, it's typical that there are subject matter experts among the, the 500 lawmakers that we've got. But it's, it, this is a situation where uh, the uncertainty is, is so pervasive among everyone else that it's just, it's just not getting – on the agenda. I mean, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has said that Congress should confront AI, but it's it's hard to see it getting on the calendar with the stuff that they've got in front of them ahead of the presidential election next year. One other important tech story we've been following this week. On Thursday, the Supreme Court handed victories to Google and Twitter in two highly watched cases. The companies will not be held liable for content that users post. Steve, what's the significance of these rulings by the Supreme Court? Well, well, they punted on Section 230, so they were able to resolve the case without weighing in on whether the liability protections for platforms, in this case it was basically, you know, the use and abuse of, of platforms that uh, uh, that provided pathways for terrorist messages or terrorist recruiting. And and in that, they sidestepped that element. So the, the liability and legal protections remain in place for Twitter or for other large uh, platforms, and they didn't weigh in on that factor. And so maybe there'll be future challenges. But as right now, the, many people looked at this as the case where we would see, you know, whether or not the the, the, the classifications of how those that publish a third party views would be treated. And so that dilemma, that that quandary remains for us in the future. The court punted. Uh, so we, we have, do not have clarity in that track. A quick update on a story we've been following involving the former president, Trump-era special counsel John Durham, released a 300-page report on the FBI's inquiry into former President Donald Trump and his connections to Russia. Mary, Trump claimed this report would show politically motivated actions by the FBI. Were there any blockbuster revelations here? I mean, it sort of depends who you ask. Like so many things in this day and age, it's a bit of a Rorschach test for your political point of view. The New York Times said that the report failed to deliver, and an op-ed in the Washington Post said it was a damning indictment of the FBI. But here's what I see. Like, okay, quick refresher on what this report did. It looked at um, the investigation into possible connections between then-presidential candidate Trump and Russia in the lead-up to the 2020 election. This investigation was launched around the same time that Steele dossier came out, the report that made a bunch of spicy allegations about Trump's ties to Moscow. And so in this report, you do see FBI agents questioning the strength of the Steele dossier, like saying, this is a thin report, and I know it sucks, that sort of stuff. However, the Steele dossier was not the only trigger for this case. There were other reasons. And the Justice Department's inspector general has already issued his own report 
about this investigation, finding no evidence that the FBI acted in a politically motivated way, and also concluding that the Russia inquiry was was sufficiently motivated by other things. And you can also look at prosecutions that emerged from the Durham investigation to kind of be a metric for how successful it was. And Durham brought three prosecutions during his tenure. Only one resulted in a conviction, and they were low level. So I think when you look at this, the only right way to see it is that there wasn't much there there because other people have have examined the same evidence. Um, However, there are little spicy details, like that exchange between the FBI folks saying like, oh, this is thin evidence at the beginning. So there are little things like that. Um, But yeah, go ahead. A key thing here is Republicans on Capitol Hill are all, and and Donald Trump, like the the Russia investigation is a hoax because of the Steele dossier. And the Durham report makes clear that that is not true, that that is not why they launched their inquiry into the possible collusion and I, I would say that the the like Mary saying the the a previous inspector general report uncovered the things that that were improper and this report despite you know four years of investigation and full power to prosecute it it didn't result in any convictions and it didn't back up those statements of you know the the Russia hoax at all Let's move on to Florida, where we have another Floridian vying possibly for the presidential race here. And the feud between Governor Ron DeSantis and the happiest place on earth continues. On Thursday, Disney backed out of plans for a $1 billion office complex in Orlando. It would have also provided 2,000 additional jobs. Disney already one of Florida's largest employers. Steve, where does this news fit in um, to the DeSantis versus Disney saga? Because this has been going on for a while. Well, you know, I'll go back to to something Governor Chris Christie said to me recently, which is traditionally a conservative ethic is not to get in the way of business, not to use the hand and resources of government to go clobber businesses and where they're going. And he asserted that Ron DeSantis is not a conservative, and he got global headlines for that comment. I think what is happening here is that that Governor DeSantis, who threatened to build a prison on the you know property line of 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 you know Disney World and to you know come in and find other ways to penalize and punish and have it you know essentially get revenge you know against Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, uh, for some of the activities there. I think this has become a very very big politically defining point both for those who uh, support Ron DeSantis and those who are are concerned about him and who oppose him. Uh, and right now it shows that Disney is willing to uh, put some, you know, of, of its resources in this to fight back and say we're not going to take it from government and and basically say we're going to take jobs away, not commit those, and we're going to put – we're going to create costs for Ron DeSantis's um, actions in this. And so I think it does have this. You, you remember Nikki Haley came out and said, hey, South Carolina is a great place. We've got a great climate. You know, we're not necessarily, uh, uh, you, know, we, you know, we don't like woke either, but, you know, we basically don't make it something that we're, you know, worshiping at the altar. So I think there are others that look at Ron DeSantis and, and D- Disney's actions are basically putting him on, a, on, on, on profile with a big highlight saying, you know, what kind of leader will this be if businesses are attacked this way? Steve, I will say as a native Floridian, 
Disney's economic influence over the state has always loomed large. Is it fair to say that most other, as you said, you mentioned Chris Christie, Nikki Haley, most other GOP uh, top Republican leadership are kind of staying away from this and not criticizing Disney publicly here? Well, I think to a certain degree they are. You know, it's going to be interesting, you know, as we get further along the way and you find whether whether in, you know, you, you don't really have onstage debates, but as Tim Scott, Nick Haley, Mike, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, other people are walk, working their way through New Hampshire and Iowa, this is going to become a regular question to them, not only about Disney, but other companies and whether they will face the same kind of strong arming. Uh, from government. And, and it's, uh, you know, interesting and ironic because Jim Jordan chairs, of course, the House Committee on Weaponization of Government. And what a lot of people say is, you know, the biggest violator right now who's weaponizing the powers of government is Ron DeSantis. So I think a lot of people are beginning to find a way to differentiate themselves from DeSantis, who's clearly the number two uh, at the moment in the GOP primary race, if if he you know finally announces he will run, which he's expected to announce shortly, so yeah, I think that other people will begin to differentiate themselves between the DeSantis position. And we're also seeing this trickle down to Florida schools. The state's Department of Education is investigating a fifth grade teacher for showing the Disney movie Strange World. A parent complained that one of the characters is a boy who has a crush on another boy. Hi, my name is Jenna Barbie. I'm the teacher that is under investigation with the Florida Department of Education for indoctrination for showing a Disney movie. Uh, The reason I was turned in is because one of the split students was a school board member's daughter. That school board member is currently on a rampage to get rid of every form of representation out of our schools. So the school board member called the Department of Education on me for indoctrination before ever coming to our school to talk with me or admin about the situation. Arthur, to Steve's point, as DeSantis prepares to launch his presidential run, how much are we going to see these kind of conflicts be a bigger part of the 2024 presidential campaign and our national conversation over the next year? Oh, they're they're taking up so much oxygen in the Republican primary. This one results from Florida's don't say gay law, which its defenders said is an unfair way to describe it. You know, that's not a fair shorthand. It's about indoctrination. But I've seen Strange World. It, it has a gay character depicted in a total, totally non-sexual way. And so the teacher said that her students were finishing up a test, and, and once we finished, they watched the movie. And this, this parent is empowered uh, to complain, and the state is actually going to investigate. They said they were going to go to the school and ask students questions. I mean, this is, this is as clear as it could be that this that don't say gay is a, a fair description of this law they're 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 trying to prevent people from even knowing that gay people exist and what are they going to ask the kids in these interviews did you see strange world did you see the gay character like what effect did that have? It's, it's so weird and creepy fifth graders right they're fifth all fifth graders. graders are asking um Free speech advocates and the book publisher Penguin Random House have teamed up against county school officials in Florida. They're suing over the state legislation banning books. Mary, what arguments are these people making? Here's what I think is interesting about this lawsuit is that it takes the whole parental rights argument that conservatives are making about kids and education, and it turns the question around. It asks, whose parental rights are we talking about here? Are we talking about the parental rights of queer people? Are we talking about the parental rights of black and brown people? Or are we simply talking about the parental rights of people with certain beliefs? 
And I think that's just a really interesting way to frame this debate. They're focusing on one school district in particular where, you know, there was a language arts teacher who submitted a list of titles to be removed. And and we're talking about books like Slaughterhouse-Five. We're talking about books like Draw Me a Star by Eric Carle. In addition to the books you may have heard of, like All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson. And so I just, I think this is, it's looking at like the speech rights. Like when you take a book away from a library, you are not simply taking it away from the child whose parents don't want to see it, you're taking it away from every kid, from kid who's a kid whose parents might want them to see it. And so that's kind of the argument that they're making here. I think it's notable with this case that this county, the school board just voted to fire the superintendent, citing staff shortages and book banning controversies. So clearly this is something happening that people are fighting about in the county. So it'll be interesting to see how this case resolves and what impact it has. And that'll do it for the domestic segment of the News Roundup. My thanks to Steve Clemens, editor-at-large at Semaphore, Arthur Delaney from The Huffington Post, and Mary Harris, the host of Slate's daily news podcast, What Next? I'd like to be under the sea. Before we head to the global edition of the News Roundup, a quick update from a lagoon in Key Largo. Explorer and medical researcher Joseph Deturi has broken the record for the longest time living underwater at ambient pressure. Today's his 80th day under the water. But his undersea residency isn't over. Deturi says he's not planning to return to the surface until he's hit the 100-day mark. His mission is called Project Neptune 100. And he told reporters, we still have more science to do. The science doesn't stop here. We'll be back with the biggest news from around the world, including Ukrainian President Zelensky's meeting with the Pope, the CIA's social media campaign against Russia, and elections in Turkey. Lots to get into, so stay with us. We would sing and dance around because we know we can't be found. I'd like to be. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. 
We know that race is always relevant and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Here at Planet Money, we bring complex economic ideas down to earth. We find weird, fun, interesting stories that explain the way money shapes our lives. Inflation, recessions, the price of gas, we've got you. Listen now to the Planet Money podcast from NPR. Let's now turn to all the biggest stories from around the globe. Coming up, Syria's Bashar al-Assad is welcome back into the Arab League fold. Debt ceiling negotiations force President Biden to cancel meetings with Indo-Pacific partners, and Turkey heads to a runoff. Helping me to round up all that news and so much more is Nancy Youssef, national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for being here, Nancy. Thanks for having me. Jody Schneider is the political news director at Bloomberg TV and Radio. Welcome to 1A. Thank you. Uh, Excited to join you. And Uri Friedman is contributing writer at The Atlantic and editorial director at The Atlantic Council. Good to have you, Uri. Good to be with you. Let's start the hour with Ukraine. President Vladimir Zelensky went on a blitz to seek more support in the war. First, he was at the Vatican. Then he was off to Paris to meet with French President Emmanuel Macron. Then a visit to Britain to meet with UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. You did a lot, you, your government and His Majesty, the King, and of course your people, your society, were very thankful from all our hearts from Ukrainians, from our soldiers. We are thankful. And this privilege to be here. Your leadership, your country's bravery and fortitude are an inspiration to us all. I look forward to us discussing what more we can do to support you and your country. And earlier today, he was at the Arab League summit in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. All your nations will understand the main call. I want to live here in Jeddah. A noble call to all of you to help protect our people, including Ukrainian Muslim community. Uri, I think that's the literal definition of a charm offensive by the Ukrainian president. Let's start at the beginning of the week with the Pope Francis meeting. Why did Zelensky make a point to stop at the Vatican? Well, Zelensky is quite charming. So, yes, it is a charm offensive. And this past several days has kind of been an exercise in where in the world is Vladimir Zelensky. He's popped up everywhere. And he's not done, by the way. It looks like he's going to visit the Group of Seven summit in Hiroshima as well. Um, and he he's doing a lot of things at once here. You know, he's meeting with stalwart allies like the prime minister of the U.K. Um, he's also, though, meeting with a bunch of world leaders who have positioned themselves more as mediators, uh, trying to be neutral in this conflict or and or at least are perceived as such. So the pope is one example of a someone who has positioned himself in the Vatican as a neutral mediator. You know, he's referred every so often to a peace mission that he wants to do kind of cryptically. We don't really understand what that is. There haven't been more details about that. And the, the pope didn't really commit to anything in particular, during his meeting, he did kind of give Zelensky an, a symbolic olive branch. He talked about his concern about humanitarian suffering. But I think what Vladimir Zelensky was trying to do here was to convince the Pope to come on board with Ukraine's peace plan, which doesn't isn't necessarily the way that the Pope is thinking about peace. What Ukrainians want is a peace plan where Russia withdraws completely from Ukrainian territory, where uh, Ukraine gets control over all of its territory, including 
areas that uh, Russia has occupied, like Crimea, um, and where Russian uh, officials and leaders who are responsible for this war are prosecuted, held accountable, and pay reparations. That is a version of peace that is different than what some others have been pushing um, and what uh, it looks like Russia would agree to at this moment. And so I think Zelensky's goal was to say this is our algorithm, as he put it, for peace and try to get people like the Pope on board with that. It's unclear if the Pope, uh, you know, was won over in any way to that. If so, he hasn't said anything to that effect. And so where now was Zelensky's in Saudi Arabia for the Arab League summit? Where do those countries fall in terms of whether they're on the side of Russia or Ukraine or trying to remain neutral? Many of the Gulf countries have also positioned themselves as potential mediators. Uh, the Saudi uh, crown prince uh, actually said as much uh, when Zelensky visited that they, they want to be mediators in this conflict. And so I think Zelensky was on a similar mission there to try to win them over to his vision of peace rather than what uh, others may be thinking. This is important because we have a potential Ukrainian counteroffensive that might start at any moment. We don't know how exactly that's going to go, but as people play out scenarios, one scenario is that whatever happens with the counteroffensive, there's a push for some kind of negotiations, peace settlement, ceasefire, etc. So, you know, Zelensky is traveling around the world in part to drum up military aid from stalwart allies, but he also needs to try to shape people's perceptions of what a negotiated settlement could look like, what he thinks a negotiated settlement should look like, and what are the pitfalls of something that, for example, Russia might propose, so that countries like the Gulf countries, like Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, also, uh, you know, actors like the Vatican— know where he and the Ukrainian leadership stand on any negotiated settlement. Nancy, to Uri's point, this long-awaited counteroffensive by Ukraine, everyone has been sort of, we've been talking about this for a while. Did Zelensky gain any more promises of military support during all of these different stops? He did. In his European tour, he went to four nations, and in three of them, he was able to get promises of more military aid in France, in the UK, and Germany. Um, one might remember that early in the war, Germany was quite reluctant to provide arms, and this time they provided almost uh, $3 billion worth, including um, uh, 20 t- uh, Leopard tanks. What's interesting to me is not only that these are weapons that could be used in the counter that you mentioned, but it appeared to be a commitment to a sustained um, investment in Ukrainian security uh, at a time when I think some were worried that European countries, European populations um, would potentially run out of stamina to keep supporting this war, given the impact on them economically. And so in each of these agreements, there were long-term commitments. The other thing we heard in France was a commitment by the French to start training French uh, or excuse me, Ukrainian pilots, fighter pilots on the F-16. And I think this week that was sort of introduced in the lexicon. We, we've we just heard from President Biden that the U.S. is also open to doing such training outside of the United States. And so, again, that training would take months. It could potentially be a part of uh, U- Ukrainian defenses in the war, um, but it also could be part of the, uh, an effort to secure Ukraine in the post-war period. Either way, for the first time, we're starting to talk about the place of fighter jets potentially um, in, in Ukraine, which is something we weren't talking about before. What needs to now be secured is a commitment for the actual fighter jets themselves, which we haven't seen any details on yet. 
kind of keeping on this uh, hardware, the de- sort of the defense part of this conversation, Nancy, on Tuesday, Russia said it destroyed one of Ukraine's Patriot missile defense systems during an overnight strike on Kiev. That advanced air defense system is made in the U.S. On Wednesday, Ukraine denied it had been destroyed. On Thursday, U.S. officials said there was minor damage to the system that had been repaired. What do you make of this exchange, Nancy? Well, remember, the Patriot is critical to defending the the capital, um, and it is the most sophisticated air defense system that they have. So to defend um, a city, the, the sort of Patriot system can only go 120 degrees. So there are three um, in, in Kiev, one from the United States, one from the Netherlands, um, one from Germany, all U.S. made. And so the and one day after um, Zelensky returned from this European tour, and I don't think it's a coincidence, we saw a real aggressive um, barrage of attacks on the capital. What the Russians, I think, were trying to signal is that they had successfully carried out something that they've been trying to do since those patriots arrived earlier this year, which was to damage or destroy them such they couldn't defend the capital and make it much more vulnerable. And it appears, at least according to the U.S., that they were unsuccessful despite using hypersonic weapons and um, at least 18 missiles. And so what we saw was, I think, an effort by the Russians to suggest that the Ukrainian defenses had been weakened. They were, however, successful, able in terms of hitting at least part of the Patriot, doing some kind of damage um, such that it wasn't um, fully operable. It looks for a period of hours. Um, So we got a window in terms of how much Russia is targeting the Patriot system, how essential that system is to uh, Ukraine's defense, and and also the limitations of the Russian strike campaign. That was was a lot of missiles to to strike at the capital, and I think one could argue that the Patriot was successful. But um, it really, I think, shined a window in terms of how much Russia is going after the capital and how much is going after that system in particular, understanding how valuable it is to the defense of the city. Jody, the G7 summit is now underway in Hiroshima, Japan. Zelensky, as we've mentioned, is also scheduled to visit there. Today, the G7 announced more sanctions on Russia. Can you tell us about those? Yes. And and this um one of the things that's really important here is this agreement, by the way, that the U.S. Um, has made uh, to support this joint effort to train Ukrainian pilots that, that was just mentioned. Uh, this is big. Um, doing this with the Zelensky visit to uh, the G7 is meaningful. This is a step that um, you know people were not sure that the U.S. was going to take. Uh, so he is going to be there. Um, it's interesting uh, that he is um, being uh, Uh, carried there uh, by both the French and U.S. military, uh, which provided a plane to Saudi Arabia. So there's a lot of, um, this has clearly been something that has been in the works. Uh, Zelensky's going to the G7. And of course, they're meeting there, they're talking about how to support uh, Ukraine, this barrages of sanctions have crimped growth but failed to deter Putin. And uh, Russia's economy has been underpinned by the commodity and energy exports to countries outside the G7. So the sanctions and how useful the sanctions can continue to be are part of the, the, the discussion going on there. Let's get to some reporting from the Washington Post. Documents from the Discord League apparently show the director of the mercenary group, Wagner, offering Ukrainian forces information on Russian troop locations. Jody, what do we know about this communication with Ukraine? Yeah, well, it's it's all kind of starting to come out, right? Um, There's, um, you know, there are 
there is um, some intelligence that Wagner, Wagner offered uh, Ukrainian-Russian troop locations. The question is, is it credible? And you can, you know, we talk to people um, who, who watch these kinds of matters who have, we have people on both sides saying, uh, on the one hand, yes, it may be credi- credible. This may make some sense. On the other hand, there's a lot of uh, disinformation, clearly. And, um, you know, people are saying that you have to be very, very careful with this kind of information. Nancy, why would Wagner leader Yevgenev Prigozhin make a kind of offer like this? I mean, very simply to preserve his force and the strength of his force um, in the Battle of Bakhmut. Um, I think the challenge is we should back up and say the reason we're learning about this is this is one of the scores of documents that were released by um, an Air National Guardman allegedly, um, on this Discord channel. And the challenge with these kinds of documents is they're sort of, um, we don't know the credibility. We haven't seen the document. So we're sort of getting pieces of intelligence, um, according to the reporting from the Washington Post, is from Signals Intelligence, which suggests they picked up a phone call or some sort of communications to suggest this. But remember that the Wagner Group has feuded with military commanders, uh, Russian military commanders. Um, He has claimed that they... um, they don't fully um, or adequately supply and equip his forces, and even though he's, he would argue he's critical to the um, Russian war effort. And so we've seen before this um, evidence of tensions what this document would suggest, that it was turning into something actionable against the Russian forces themselves. You can join our conversation. You can email us 1A at WAMU.org or you can tweet us at 1A. We just got this comment from our listener, Pat Fisher in Michigan. It sounds like Ukraine is a test case for various weapons. Uri, I wanted to ask you, you recently wrote a piece for The Atlantic where you spoke to historians and political scientists and and former officials and you asked them about their thoughts on how the war in Ukraine might end. And you said we're maybe looking at decades of fighting. Yeah, what I found really did surprise me. You know, the the question, the context for a lot of what we're seeing right now, all the activity we've discussed uh, in the show so far, is the the looming counteroffensive by Ukraine. The broader context is what is the end game here? You know, how will this war end? When will it end? And so I put that question um, to many, a big array of experts. A lot of takeaways from what I heard from them. One was that, you know, we tend to think about the Hollywood ending uh, for something like this, that, you know, David in Or like a World War II ending. Yeah, that's right. It's either apocalyptic or Hollywood. You know, it's either the David beats Goliath, Ukraine beats um, definitively beats Russia, or it's something apocalyptic like uh, a, you know, Russian nuclear use in Ukraine, for example. Some people see Putin uh, falling and being ousted. Many people I spoke to said that those those types of outcomes are very unlikely, and one of the big points of consensus was that so many people felt this is we're in for a long shape-shifting conflict here. And one of the things I was surprised, I wrote this, you know, after the one-year mark of, of the war. And one thing I was surprised about is that that one-year mark is really significant um, because uh, uh, the Center for Strategic and International Studies did a, st- a study on wars since 1946, interstate conflicts like the one in Ukraine. They found that more than half end in less than a year. And when these types of conflicts last for more than a year. They tend to last for a decade. I also sent um, a, a question to a bunch of super forecasters. These are experts who think about the, the future and um, work on a platform uh, but called Good Judgment to 
to make predictions, essentially, um, on future outcomes. And I said, when do you think the war will end? Give me a date. And the median answer they had was 2025. The earliest was 2024. The longest was 2037. Uh, I also spoke to one, a Cold War historian, Michael Kimmich, who used to work in the U.S. government, who said, you know, even if the hot, the current hot conflict ends soon, we need to prepare for a potentially Cold War-like generational struggle with Russia that's between Russia and Ukraine, but also um, is between Russia and and the United States and Western countries. The, the one thing I'd say, though, is this isn't uniform. This is something I think we all need to prepare for and think about. Um, and I think a, a long, drawn-out attritional war uh, could favor Russia, and that's what Ukraine is really worried about. But there are some that make the argument that if we were to provide the high um, end weaponry that Ukraine is asking for, we talked about fighter jets before, Ukraine, at least, is making the case in many backwards that they could, they think they could actually end this conflict within the year. So this isn't that is the argument that we don't have to be deterministic and defeatist about this. There is a way to keep this from being the long conflict that might favor Russia. Let's talk about Russia. There, the scientific community is speaking out against the Kremlin's arrest of three academics working on hypersonic missile technology. The Kremlin said the three men were arrested for high treason. Nancy, why are these scientists being targeted? That's a great question. I mean, we didn't learn about the arrest of one of them until this piece came out. The letter came out from fellow scientists who um, who said that their um, their arrest is really um, putting a, um, a, a, a has a quashing effect in terms of research. That it's hurting the ability to recruit young Russians to enter the the community, and then the state news agency confirmed that arrest. What they've been charged with is essentially selling um, secrets uh, in one case to China, um, but the details haven't been released. It's one of the challenges with these cases is that we often don't see details, particularly on treason cases. It does come at a time, though, where we've seen a real uptick in charges of treason across Russia, often for cases related to the war in Ukraine. And I think some might interpret and what the scientists are warning about is the chilling effect that it is having in terms of any kind of um, dissent. So... uh, we, we've often seen this with military officers being charged, but now we're seeing cases entering the civilian community um, from a community that had been, by any objective measure, working towards the state. And so um, I, one could argue that this, the scientists who signed this letter showed a lot of courage in that they called for an urgent solution, that they put light on this. And it has seemed that they were ringing the bell to say – the the swath of people who could face treason charges in this current climate is expanding to to the academic and scientific community. Speaking of treason, the CIA launched a new recruitment video this week. Yes, you heard that right. The U.S. intelligence agency is using its social media accounts to recruit new Russian spies. The dramatic video ends with a person contacting the CIA on their cell phone and the words... I will live the true life. This is my Russia. This will always be my Russia. We will live with dignity thanks to my actions. Я буду жить истинной жизнью. Это моя Россия. Jody, this effort comes after a similar text-based campaign from the CIA to recruit Russian spies last year. Does this work? 
Yeah, we'll see. Um, you, you would wonder if this is something that if you're going to get the best uh, people that you want to join the CIA uh, to you know to go to or, TikTok or to yeah. join the agency, yeah, to go to TikTok. Um, it really is um, concerning, and you know the CIA, like many government agencies, has a real problem right now. You've got all these retirements. You have um, you know a, a lot of a brain drain, so-called brain drain, and um, they want you know they need the new crop of people, and they're not quite sure how to get them. The the ways that they used to do things are, you know, dated. Uh, so, but there's a lot of skepticism. And I was speaking to somebody, um, you know, who who is, knows about intelligence and said, I just think this is almost kind of silly that we're trying to do it this way. Let's switch to another topic. Scientists at the World Meteorological Organization are warning that by 2027, the globe's average temperatures will rise up will rise above the 1.5 degrees Celsius increase that many consider to be the tipping point for catastrophic global warming effects. The report cites heat waves caused by the brewing El Nino weather cycle as indicators that Earth's hottest year on record is soon approaching. Uri, um, countries have pledged under the 2015 Paris Agreement to work together to keep global temperatures below this climate threshold. Can you remind us what kind of challenges that agreement has faced recently? Well, the biggest challenge is that a lot of countries made a lot of promises, but there's no way to enforce countries living up to those promises, and many are lagging behind in doing so. And some argue that even those promises were insufficient to the task at hand in terms of curbing global warming and climate change. Um, So, you know, this is, I will say, before the Paris Agreement, people often talked about two degrees of warming above pre-industrial levels as the thing we needed to avoid, the Rubicon we shouldn't cross. Um, 1.5 took on a new status after Paris um, because there was a commitment to say, we're going to aim and do our best, you know, in these diplomatic um, agreements. Sometimes there's a lot of hedgy language in terms of uh, what people are committing to, but they say, you know, we will do our best to keep warming no more than uh, 1.5 degrees above pre-industrial levels. So that became the the target. And I think, you know, this, this finding, this announcement, it doesn't necessarily say that all we have failed in Paris because what they are saying is that we are going to hit 1.5 within the next several years but Paris is saying what Paris is trying to avoid is something where we are consistently going above 1.5 degrees um, of warming. And that's not necessarily the case. This might happen. We might get a little glimpse, a snapshot into what a world of 1.5 degrees warming looks like. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that is going to be our new status quo for the next, you know, 20 years. It's unclear who will be the new president of Turkey. None of the candidates were able to secure more than 50 percent of the vote. President Recep Tayyip Erdogan faces a tough challenge as his administration is still under fire for its response to the devastating earthquakes in Turkey in February. Nancy, who's Erdogan running against in this round? Well, I, I'm, I'm probably going to mispronounce his name, so bear with me. So, Kilich Dardu, who has Kili- been a long time I think time it's Kilich Dardu. I told, I, I, but I, at least I warned you. <laughs> I was going to get it right. Um, he has been a longtime leader um, of a, a, a coalition of opposition groups. He's a, he is a religious minority. He's put up a really rare united front against a leader who's been in power since 2003. And interestingly, he was really shut down of sort of mainstream Turkish media throughout this election and launched a campaign um, through social media. And the polls suggested that he would do better than he thought 
then I think um, the outcome ended up being in the first um, round of elections. Um, what we saw is someone who appealed to um, younger voters, city voters, whereas Erdogan's base seemed to be from Sunni communities, more rural or conservative communities. And so we really saw that split um, in the vote. Th- that being said, there was a third-party nationalist who might have split the opposition vote, which will make the May 28th runoff, um, I think, interesting and not a foregone conclusion that it goes for Erdogan, even though um, he did better than I think some had anticipated uh, in the run-up to this election. But um, the, the opposition is interesting. It's the most dynamic and, I think, um, aggressive threat that Erdogan has faced um, since rising to power. And this is someone who has um, survived politically for as long as Erdogan has been in power, which I think is one reason it's been such an interesting election to watch. Uri, what role, whether it's Erdogan or Kilic Darulu, what role would either winner play in the NATO alliance in the war on Ukraine? Oh, a really important role. I mean, Turkey is a bit um, uh, of a different case than many other NATO members in that it has maintained some relations with Russia. Uh, it, it, you know, it is, it has also. Uh, uh, put up resistance to Sweden joining NATO. Um, it did accede to to Finland doing that. Um, so, and it's one of the mo- you know it has one of the most powerful militaries in NATO. So it, it plays a really important role in terms of the, the direction of the alliance, the enlargement of the alliance, the how the alliance um, works to resolve the war in Ukraine, and it relates, if at all, to, to Russia. So it's really pivotal, and that's why this election. I mean, it's consequential for so many reasons, but that's a huge reason why. I will say, you know, we kind of know where Erdogan stands on on all these questions. There were there was a lot more questions about where the opposition stood and what its policies would be. Um, it now does seem uh, that. Erdogan is a favorite. And so I think uh, while NATO leaders will be looking out for all outcomes uh, here and, and and watching to see what happens, um, they will certainly have to be taking into account if, if Erdogan is reelected for another term, what that means um, for working with him on, on the remaining issues, you know, how to proceed on, on Ukraine and also uh, how to find a way to admit Sweden into the alliance as well. Let's move on to another important election this week, but this one had a clear winner. Supporters of the Move Forward Party shouted prime minister after a resounding victory in the Thai elections. The progressive Move Forward Party has significant support from younger voters rebuking the military party that's ruled in the country for the last decade. Jody, you've spent a lot of time reporting in the region. Based on your knowledge of that, what do these elections mean for Thai politics? Yeah, this really does set up uh, the biggest challenge to the royalist-backed establishment since the military seized power uh, in a coup uh, almost a decade ago. This is really significant. Um, Still, it's unclear if these two parties are going to be able to form a government. There's 250 senators appointed by the military who also will get a vote for prime minister and other political parties uh, could be somewhat reluctant to join with Move Forward due to its position on the monarchy. Um, for those who, who aren't as aware, uh, perceived uh, opposition to the royal family has been used as a pretext to dissolve political parties over the past few decades. And of course, there uh, this whole royalist um, establishment has has really you know governed the country. Oh, and any kind of uh, any kind of uh, viewed of any kind of opposition to the you know royalty has is uh, you know, very much punished in Thailand. So this is a very big deal that these pro democracy parties were able to come together. Um, they basically uh, the move forward 
Third Party, which is an advocate, of course, of changing the law that restricts criticism of the monarchy. Uh, they led in both total seats and popular votes. And then together with the uh, Futai Party, which is linked to the former uh, premier who was exiled, they were uh, getting about 287 of the 500 seats in the lower house. So this was significant for Thailand. It's been more than a decade since Syria was at the Arab League summit, but today Bashar al-Assad was welcomed back into the fold. Nancy, al-Assad was suspended from the Arab League following a brutal crackdown in 2011 that led to a devastating civil war that's killed hundreds of thousands, displaced millions, and torn the country apart. What's changed that has pulled him out of isolation now? That's right. And a war that actually continues and hasn't been resolved. I think we saw two things. I, the, that the Arab world is essentially saying that they believe Assad is here to stay despite um, that decade-plus-long war. And that solving the problems of Syria requires engagement from Damascus. And from the Arab um, world's perspective, they see a Syria that has been destabilizing to the region. They want to be able to re- reverse some of the drug trafficking networks, the refugee crisis, the weakened border security, and Iran's intensified role in Tehran-backed militias in Syria. And so this was an Arab League that was saying that it's no longer feasible to isolate Assad from the conversation. Um, While there was um, a willingness to have him at the table, we heard from Qatar, Kuwait, the U.S., and the U.K. that that this was not as welcome, that they didn't see any contrition from Assad, that there hasn't been any accountability. And so um, we are seeing a a, a diplomatic dance of sorts where um, the the region is saying we need to engage Assad and and, and most – other nations and allies are saying not without some level of accountability. Jody, to that point, how does Washington feel about the normalizing of relations? Yeah, this is a big concern for Washington. Uh, this, uh, you know, uh, uh, Saudi-led Arab embrace of Assad is really in sharp contrast to the heavy U.S. sanctions uh, that remain in place against the leader and his family, uh, government and business associates for their central role in the war. Just this week, uh, we saw the U.S. Uh, House Foreign Affairs Committee pass a new legislation uh, that specifically specifically focuses on confronting diplomatic uh, advances towards Syria uh, led by these countries. And um, the U.S. is also concerned, of course, about um, the uh, China brokering this deal uh, where uh, the kingdoms are restoring ties with Iran. And, of course, the U.S. is very concerned about that relationship and also that they, you know, they, this was really kind of, they were kind of caught by surprise uh, in China brokering this deal. And this, uh, you know, complicates, further complicates the U.S. relationship with China as well. Staying in the region, thousands of marchers walked through occupied East Jerusalem's old city on Thursday for the annual far-right, quote, flag march, taunting Palestinians and hurling insults. The event held on Jerusalem Day marks the 1967 capture and annexation of East Jerusalem, a move considered illegal under international law. Two years ago, the event helped fuel an 11-day war between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Nancy, how did things go this year? Well, there were fears that this could spark renewed violence this year, given that there have been days of cross-border fighting between Palestinian militant fighters in Gaza. Um, And and so there had been some calls to maybe uh, 
push back a little bit on it, and that didn't happen. We heard, as you mentioned, a very um, unpleasant scene that they were yelling death to Arabs, that a lot of um, um, East Jerusalem residents were trying to sort of stay away. Some were in mosques. Some were trying not to engage. We saw um, pellets being thrown at journalists who were wearing, in particular women who were wearing the hijab. And so despite that, I think there was some relief that it didn't lead to, as you mentioned two years ago, renewed violence because of how tenuous the situation is uh, right now. Keep in mind, it took 2,500 officers to keep the march relatively peaceful. Um, and so it gives you a sense of sort of the, the degree of nervousness and yet um, the push um, by the Israeli government to, to go forward with, with, with the march. Finally, Joe Biden is coming home early The president curtailed an upcoming trip to the Indo-Pacific, scrapping what was going to be a historic stop in Papua New Guinea and a visit to Australia for a gathering with fellow leaders of the Quadrilateral Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, also known as the Quad Partnership. His reason for return focused on the debt ceiling negotiations. Jody, what had been on the agenda for these talks? Well, they are going to happen now. They're just going to happen in Japan. Uh, President Biden just announced that uh, the in-person meeting with Australia, Japan, and India leaders uh, will occur in Hiroshima. Um, they, after he was supposed to go, obviously, to uh, Australia for that to happen, he canceled that after he was getting a fair bit of criticism uh, from Republicans, but even some in his own party saying with this these critical debt limit talks, uh, it did not, um, you know, the optics, uh, if not Nothing else were not good for him to be uh, in Australia at that point, and certainly in Papua New Guinea. Although that is an important, that was an important trip for the U.S. to kind of counter uh, China's growing influence in the region. But now they're all going to have a shortened quad meeting uh, in Hiroshima, uh, and we'll see how much they get done. But um, that you know, this is um, a group that has said that this is a very key. Um, they're the the uh, priorities for them are very key and that scrapping those talks was not going to uh, particularly make the Australians very happy, uh, but others as well. So they're going to kind of have a few hours of talks in Hiroshima over the weekend. So the Quad is made up of the U.S., India, Japan, and Australia. Uri, to Jody's point, the U.S. has been working hard to provide a counterweight to China's influence in their region. So even if it's just a few hours, what are we expecting to have on the agenda there? Oh, there will be a lot of uh, focus on how to counter China's economic coercion um, and its influence in the global south and how to have make these countries own inroads in the global south. Also concerns about Taiwan, I'm sure, will come up and whether there will be a conflict there. You know, this was the definition of a no-win situation for uh, Joe Biden because if you cancel the talks, it's like, oh, well, our debt ceiling and political issues back home are keeping us away from making our presence known in the Pacific – But if the U.S. defaults in June, that is even potentially have bigger repercussions for U.S. leadership in the global financial system, for the U.S. dollar, uh, et cetera. So I think, you know, Joe Biden's calculation here was we need to resolve this and that needs to be the focus. That'll that'll be the way to safeguard um, U.S. standing at home and and abroad as well. Um, But all those issues will come up and they'll be able to discuss a lot of them even on the sidelines of the Group of Seven meeting. And how important is it just to be in person? I think it's important. I I think you can you can do. We've all discovered how to do virtual um, things productively uh, in these last several years. But I think in person, there's no substitute for it. There will be a lot to discuss and to have the leaders meet each other. It also sends a signal that the quad is for real. These leaders are meeting. This is a real entity that is going to make a difference in the world. 
And we have one more topic to visit this week, one of the world's glitziest red carpets. I'm talking, of course, about the Cannes Film Festival. Joining us now is Jacqueline Coley, awards editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Hi, Jacqueline. It's great to have you back on 1A. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Uh, Broadcasting live from the south of France. I do love that. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds very glamorous. Directors, actors, and producers have gathered in the French Riviera for cinema's biggest week, the 76th Cannes Film Festival. Some of the films premiering at Cannes this week include the new Indiana Jones movie, Wes Anderson's Asteroid City, and Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. From what you've seen so far, what titles have stood out to you? Well, what's really interesting is it's an inventive mix of discovery and auteur cinema, which is what Cannes is pretty much known for. I mean, you have people like Michelle Gonry, um, also Wes Anderson, obviously James Mangold. They've all had films here. Martin Scorsese is a god on the uh, Tapé Rouge, which they call the red carpet over here. But that is intermixed with some really exciting discoveries as well. I mean, you have lesser known filmmakers like Alice Rorschach coming back. You have a lot of foreign filmmakers who are also auteurs in their own right, like Corey having a, a return to force with a film like Monster. Um, it, it is a, a really exciting festival in that sense because there's something literally for everyone. But I think the one that folks are most attuned to right now is the Martin Scorsese, for sure. Killers of the Flower Moon. And has that, have you seen that yet? I will be seeing that later uh, this weekend. I'm not allowed to say if I've seen it before because uh. it's still under embargo. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How much does a reception a movie get at Cannes impact the way it performs outside of festivals, both critically and commercially? I do love that you have this because I recently went back and looked at last year and some of the larger standing ovations from Cannes last year included Brendan Fraser for uh, The Whale as well as Elvis. And also, I might add, uh, Top Gun received a rapturous uh, standing ovation. And all of those films ended up doing quite well in the Academy Awards. And as the Academy Awards, which is also here this weekend, I believe both the president and the new CEO, Bill Kramer and Janet Yang, are doing talks and panels, it is a much more... I would say, global event, the Academy Awards this year. You have movies like Triangle of Sadness, which won the Palme d'Or here last year, being nominated for Best Picture. And so the reception among critics and I would say awards audience is still top tier, but it depends on the film as to whether or not it actually becomes a box office success. Although recent films like Parasite, Top Gun, which was outside the competition, but also still premiered here at the film festival, they all also have huge, um, I would say, reception and buzz that is generated in part by the glitz and glams of uh, Cannes Film Festival. Right. And to that point about premieres, opening night saw the release of the French drama Jean Dubarry starring Johnny Depp in his first major Hollywood film in five years. Prior to the festival, an open letter signed by 100 actors criticized the film festival for letting him attend. Depp won a defamation suit against his ex-wife last year after she accused him of physical, sexual, and emotional abuse. What has the reaction to Depp's presence at this year's festival been like? You know, I can't really say because one thing I will say is I actually arrived in Cannes late and so I didn't catch opening night and so I really didn't see a ton of it. But I think one thing that is true of the Cannes Film Festival is that this is a a meeting ground of a lot of young people, diverse voices, diverse of thought. And I would say for as many people that are on both sides of, I would say, their opinion about that film, that filmmaker, the choice of Johnny Depp, there's folks on both sides of that sort of conversation. And me as a film fan, I was more interested in the costumes of Jean DuBerry, less so than the people that are in it. And from what I understand, uh, Mr. Depp has a very small role in it. So I, I would I would say it's it's a question that I think 
every Hollywood organization has to ask as these things come across. I mean, these are similar questions that have been asked about other filmmakers. And I think in the end, it's going to be a personal choice of the people seeing the films, of the people that are programming the festivals, and it's really their purview. It's really interesting, too, that you mentioned sort of the politics that have been swirling around the festival, because in addition to that, there's been the strikes that have been happening in Paris, and there's been sort of an issue on whether or not this, you know, obviously very glamorous, very expensive festival plays well when you have folks dealing with cost of living crisis crises, whatever. But what I think is more interesting when we look at it, this is like inherent to Cannes. I mean, when the revolution was happening, you had people in the French New Wave sort of like protesting in Cannes. It is like kind of inherent to the festival to have this discourse of of sort of like opinions and people sort of arguing about it through every aspect of the film festival. So it's it's almost like it's baked in, whether this be the controversy of this year. After Me Too, there was like similar protestations about that. It, it's um it's a part of this festival. And I think it's more so than any of the ones that we see back home, something that they always sort of have to deal with and talk to. One last question for you. How what is the mood like? Because this is a post-pandemic world. Lots of people are gathering. Probably, I don't know if this is the biggest crowds since the pandemic, but as you mentioned, it's against the backdrop of not just strikes in France, but also in Hollywood. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I should have added that. And so I think a film like that with political sort of unrest being at the center of its story is probably going to be the one that wins the Palme d'Or. And there's several films that encompass that, like Ken Loach's Old Oak. Sorry, I should have given you the title. Um, That is the one that actually has won the early sort of predication of the Palme d'Or. Also, uh, Corrieta's Monster, which is also um, in competition. That one as well has an undercurrent about toxic masculinity and and, and sort of young boys growing into that later in life. So those are two that I would definitely center out as my sort of favorite. Um, and then, I'm sorry, go back to your last question. About the mood, just what it's been like. Yeah, the mood, I would say for overall, the general mood is as celebratory as you can be, given that we're having to temper things. So I've seen a lot less what I would say people sort of reveling in what would typically be like throngs of crowns at the Cannes Film Festival. There's a lot less, I would say, interest in some of um, some of the movie stars that are here. It's much, it's a little bit more subdued, if I have to admit it. Folks are really here just to see the movies, to see what's there. I think the liveliness will start next weekend as some of the bigger titles like Killers of a Flower Moon start happening. Also, filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino are going to be here later in the year. And those are really the ones that get the vibes happening. Anytime you can get somebody like Leonardo DiCaprio or Scarlett Johansson on your red carpet at these events, you will definitely feel that atmosphere. So far, the only premiere that I've seen that has had the real sort of can vibes of old was the Indiana Jones premiere. They really made that feel like an old school can party with the party on the beach. You had Harrison Ford, obviously very emotional, sort of saying goodbye to Indy. That to me really encompasses exactly what, you know, can is about. All right. Well, joining us from the south of France, the French Riviera, Jacqueline Coley, awards editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. In other entertainment news, Canadian pop star The Weeknd, spelled with just two E's, announced this week that, well, he's moving on. He told followers he's gone back to using his birth name, Abel Tesfaye, on all of his social media accounts. The singer, who's best known for his 80s-esque pop tunes like Blinding Lights, asked his fans on Twitter in April if he should make the change. More than 100,000 likes later, the decision has now been made. Abel told W Magazine, I'm getting ready to close the weekend chapter. You can turn me on with just a touch, baby. 
thanks to our guests who joined us for the international segment of the News Roundup. Nancy Youssef is a national security correspondent at The Wall Street Journal. Jody Schneider is the political news director at Bloomberg TV and Radio. Uri Friedman is contributing writer at The Atlantic and editorial director at The Atlantic Council. Jocelyn Coley also joined us for a recap of the 76th Annual Cannes Film Festival. She's the awards editor at Rotten Tomatoes. Thank you all for joining us. Before we go, a remembrance. Longtime The Smiths bass player Andy Rourke passed away in New York City Friday morning due to pancreatic cancer. The English bass player joined The Smiths in 1982 after the band tried their luck with different bassists. Rourke would go on to play bass on the band's biggest hits, including There's a Light That Never Goes Out and This Charming Man. He eventually got fired in 1986 due to his drug use. Allegedly, he was left a written note about his dismissal. He rejoined the band almost immediately and stayed as a member until the band's breakup in 1987. Andy Rourke was 59. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer. Chris Costano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios Today. This is 1A. I would go out tonight, but I haven't got a stitch to wear. This man said it's gruesome that someone so handsome should care. You care about what's happening in the world. Let State of the World from NPR keep you informed. Each day, we transport you to a different point on the globe and introduce you to the people living world events. We don't just tell you world news, we take you there. And you can make this journey while you're doing the dishes or driving your car. State of the World podcast from NPR. Vital international stories every day. The Bullseye podcast is, according to one journalist, the, quote, kind of show people listen to in a more perfect world. So make your world more perfect. Every week, Bullseye puts the pop in culture, interviewing brilliant authors, musicians, actors, and novelists to keep you on your pop culture target. Listen to the Bullseye podcast, only from NPR and Maximum Fun. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. How people are taking action in the face of climate change. The many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present. And how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR.